Welcome to episode two of our COVID-19 inquiry spotlight sessions, political tactics or best practice. In the last episode, we talked about what a public inquiry is, how public inquiries are established and the various stages of an inquiry. In this episode, we're going to discuss the extent to which the state can effectively examine itself in a public inquiry when it has the ultimate responsibility for determining the remit and therefore inevitably the scope of any conclusions. We'll be discussing the importance of independence in an inquiry to ensure that the process is effective and free from any political tactics, how independence in an inquiry can be influenced by things like the selection of the chair and the terms of reference, and how all of this relates to the COVID-19 inquiry that's coming up. So let's start by talking about the importance of independence in public inquiries. Hannah? Well, the fundamental aim of a public inquiry is to seek to restore public confidence and help the government and other organisations identify improvements so that they can avoid recurrence of issues by unravelling what went wrong. Independence and impartiality are key factors in ensuring that these aims are achieved. As the COVID-19 inquiry will be an investigation into primarily the state, and it's also commissioned by the state, it will be necessary for the inquiry team selected by the government to demonstrate absolutely that there is no conflict of interest. So how can it do that and achieve its aims? Aside from some government guidance, which you know broadly covers areas like requirements of the hearing, how to make appeal, specifics of attendance. There's not really that much guidance available you know, on setting up and the running of the inquiries. But in light of this, there is um, a very, very helpful note by the Centre for Effective uh, Dispute Resolution, otherwise known as CEDA, which was released uh, in 2015. Broadly speaking, it covers you know policy, procedure, but it also sets out sort of best practice on independence, uh, especially uh, in relation to what sort of approach the government might take. In relation to you know the importance of independence and sort of fairness and objectivity, then Hannah, you know, what what do you reckon? Well, I think it's uh, useful to start by looking at the CEDA guidance and what it says about the importance of independence, fairness and objectivity in public inquiries. When it comes to independence, the CEDA guidance says that the inquiry and its principal members should be separate from the organisations that are involved with the events that have led to the inquiry. And the inquiry should be able to conclude what it wants of its own volition without any deference to other parties. And I think that is really important for this upcoming COVID-19 inquiry. So then to objectivity... The inquiry should consider the evidence presented to it using a completely open mind and using objective criteria. The inquiry must not, in reaching its conclusion, be seen to be coming from any kind of partisan or subjective viewpoint. And then finally, to fairness. In its dealings with witnesses, in its considerations of evidence, a public inquiry must be seen as being fair to all of those involved when it deals with the evidence. And most importantly, in a way that's consistent and balanced across all the witness testimony. Hannah, could you tell us a bit more about what an inquiry seeks to achieve by demonstrating these principles? Well, there are two main things that the CEDA guidance says will be demonstrated by these principles. The first is that the chair signals that there's an effective review process over the events of concern. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, that the public can have confidence in the inquiry process and the outcome and also the recommendations that follow. The guidance says that the recommendations are much more likely to be supported if they can be shown to have been developed in a demonstrably independent, objective and fair way. 
It's clear that maintaining independence, objectivity and fairness in the inquiry process is of great importance to any inquiry. In terms of the COVID-19 inquiry, the government has confirmed that the inquiry will be established on a statutory basis, which means that witnesses can be legally compelled to attend and give evidence and to provide material under oath. And some may see that as a commitment to securing a robust and transparent investigation of the issues, which is what the public wants. There are a couple of other areas that are going to be key in terms of independence as well, and that's the selection of the chair and also the terms of reference. So Alex, firstly, could you talk us through how the chair can contribute to independence? Well, firstly, Hannah, you know, the role of the chair is a massively important role, especially in the COVID inquiry, you know, the scope and the vastness of everything that needs to be covered. But what's most important is the chair must be independent and they must be impartial. The selection of the chair should also, in general, be seen as a fairly, well, a very transparent process whereby both those involved in selection, so the government, and also the wider public, so they can see really how that selection was made. Moving on to the actual COVID inquiry itself, um, the chair was announced last year in December, and it's been announced as Dame Heather Hallett. Um, while the process for her appointment you know, has, hasn't yet been made public, the appointment does seem to have been welcomed across the board. Um, Dame Hallett has got some enormously brilliant experience in dealing with sensitive, high profile and you know, complex inquiries. Um, she did act as the coroner for the inquests into the deaths of the victims of the 7-7 bombings. You know, her experience and her reputation as well was seen as efficient, straight talking and fair as well, which is very important. I think this will no doubt contribute to the public's perception of the inquiry and it's going to reflect well on the independence of the process as well. So upon being announced as the chair, Dame Hallett expressed her commitment to, to finding answers. She said this, she said, I want to assure the British public that once the terms of reference are finalised, I shall do my utmost to ensure the inquiry answers as many questions as possible about the UK's response to the pandemic so that we can all learn lessons for the future. So the selection of Dame Hallett as the chair of the COVID inquiry seems to have been a fairly positive step towards demonstrating the independence of the inquiry. But I think it will be the terms of reference which will really define the extent of the examination to which the state is prepared to expose itself. As you say, Alex, the scope of the COVID-19 inquiry will be critical in determining how seriously it's taken by the public and whether it's viewed as a realistic channel for scrutinising the government's actions or merely a political tool. There are a number of issues that the public will want to see considered, including the UK death rates, the suitability of the government's pandemic planning and the actions it took to mitigate the spread and impact of the virus and the support measures that it put in place to safeguard the well-being of the nation as a whole, particularly measured against the expert advice it received as to the actions which were recommended. There have already been calls for and legal action in relation to the wider examination of the issue of PPE procurement, for example, but whether or not the government opens itself up to such scrutiny remains to be seen. So Hannah, how could the inquiry approach the terms of reference to ensure that it keeps independence at the heart of the inquiry? Well, in the past, inquiries have been criticised for having limited terms of reference. And if that transpires to be the case for the COVID inquiry, that would undoubtedly attract major criticism. So it is imperative that the terms of reference factor in potential outcomes of the inquiry to put it in their strongest position to make meaningful recommendations that stand the greatest chance of implementation and affecting real change, which after all is the primary purpose of any inquiry. It's broadly recognised that it should be possible for the chair to suggest improvements to the terms of reference, and that view is supported by the CEDA guidance. 
The guidance recommends the introduction of a one-month consultation period following the release of the draft terms of reference, so that interested parties can make representations on what the terms of reference should be before they're finalised, taking a more collaborative approach. Now, there are some difficulties and drawbacks, as well as obvious benefits to such a collaborative approach, um, which, Alex, perhaps you could take us through. I think... What will make this collaborative approach fairly difficult is the scale of the inquiry. But, you know, the government's decision to delay the start of the inquiry until this year means that time can be no real barrier, you know, certainly in terms of the chair helping frame and agree the terms of reference. We take the view that open consultation with relevant stakeholders ought to really form part of that framing process. The inquiry website does seem to suggest that there will be a formal consultation, but it remains to be seen to what extent this will be. Previous experiences definitely make it clear that the public's perception of what is vital to consider ought to be followed, but effective communication will be necessary to ensure the public remain engaged and, you know, notwithstanding, of course, the uh, necessary limitations of any public inquiry. And in our view, you know, you achieve that through a process of transparent consultation and, you know, perhaps scrutiny by further parliamentary committees alongside the public inquiry itself. Let's be honest, in ideal circumstances, you really do need to separate the politics from the process. So, guys, you just want to give us a bit of a summing up, and a bit some concluding thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think, firstly, independence is key. It's clear that the inquiry should be able to reach its conclusions without the need for deference to any other party. As a matter of reality and as a matter of perception, the inquiry must, as far as possible, be free from any taint or suggestion of politics. Hannah, what do you think? Well, from what we've seen so far, it seems to be going in the right direction. I think establishing the inquiry on a statutory basis and then appointing a very experienced, capable and fair chairperson all seems to be steps in the right direction to ensuring the independence of the inquiry. Absolutely. You know, and the government needs to ensure that it's set up to provide clear and achievable recommendations to address any identified shortcomings. And also it needs to commit to delivering it within measurable timescales. I know we all know it can grow arms and legs, but what we must consider is also what must be done to achieve meaningful change that the public is ultimately demanding. Thanks all for joining us for this spotlight session. In the next episode, we'll be discussing what the COVID inquiry might look like what it will achieve, well, what we think it will achieve, and what we know so far about those leading the inquiry. We really hope you can join us. Thank you.